Uh, I feel like we could have titled this sermon, David's Son Has Got It Going On, um, but, I just, but I just thought of that, so it's too late. Um, the Bible uh, is a narrative, and sometimes uh, preaching on a passage, particularly from an Old Testament narrative, uh, is a bit like opening up a novel, reading one paragraph from that novel, and then trying to uh, give all of the background so you can understand that one paragraph. <laughs> And uh, so that's a, our, our passage like uh, today is a little bit like that. A lot has happened since our last sermon last week when we saw uh, David's covenant compassion towards Mephibosheth. We've begun to see the beautiful preview of God's kingdom as, God, as David ruled righteously and mercifully as a mirror of God's righteous and merciful rule. But since the passage that we talked about last week, as Brad alluded to, a down, downward spiral has begun. And it began with David, who we saw for weeks in this series, had resisted for so long taking the kingdom into his own hand, by his own hand, and was instead waiting for God to provide and make him a steward of the kingdom. But then what happens in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel is that David takes. He took Bathsheba, the wife of another man, for his own. And then he took the life of her husband by intentionally putting him on the front lines of a battle to ensure that he would die. We saw David in chapter 12 be confronted by the prophet Nathan, and David repented over his sin. He owned the reality of what he had done, and God had forgiven him. Nathan said that God had put his sin away from him. But David's sin would not be without consequence in his life, and that's what we start to see in this passage. Just two chapters after David took Bathsheba for himself, his own son, Amnon took his half-sister Tamar and tragically and heartbreakingly raped her. It tells us that David was very angry when he heard about what had happened to his daughter. And yet, despite his anger, David, the supposedly righteous king of Israel, does nothing to bring justice for his violated daughter Tamar. And so begins the drama that leads to our passage today, because the watchful eye of Absalom, the main character of our story this morning, the son of David and full brother of his violated sister Tamar, his eye had been on his father and on his father's evil un, and on his unpunished half-brother Amnon. Absalom ultimately takes matters into his own hand and he orchestrates the killing of Amnon to exact vengeance for his sister's rape. And Absalom fled from Israel after killing Amnon, and two years later, he's been brought back to Jerusalem. But he continues to live as an at an unreconciled distance from David, from his passive father, David. And up to this point in the story, as a reader, Absalom has been a pretty relatable character. He's, his anger seems justified. He is wily. He's a little rough around the edges. He's a bit of a vigilante. But who else was going to take vengeance and to avenge Tamar's tragedy when David, the king who was responsible for overseeing justice in the kingdom, did nothing? Because his causes have seemed right and his frustration understandable, it might be easy to root for Absalom in this passage. And maybe even you see yourself in him a bit. Maybe you see sin and evil in the world or see something that you know could be done better and you're like, who else is going to do it? I have to take matters into my own hands or it'll never get done. Maybe you take on extra work from your coworkers. Maybe you do things for your kids that they could do for themselves. 
Maybe you feel like you are the one who has to speak on social media on some matter because you feel like no one else is speaking out in the right way. Or maybe you have some empathy for a character like Absalom because even if he's got some flaws, he gets things done. Maybe you think, sure, this leader, this podcaster, this social media character, this politician is wily and rough around the edges, but this world is messed up, and somebody's got to do something or say something about the evils and injustices of our day. Up to this point in the story, Absalom seems justified in his anger and maybe even in his actions. But then Samuel begins to reveal a little bit more about the character of Absalom. Verses 25 through 27 that we read earlier goes out of its way to tell us how handsome of a man Absalom was. He was praised throughout Israel for his good looks. He had celebrity status. He had good looks, and he knew it. He had this annual ritual. It's kind of comical when you read about it. He had this annual ritual of cutting his hair and weighing it just to demonstrate how excellent his physical faculties were down to the weight of his hair. And this Absalom is used to getting what he wants. He doesn't take no for an answer. He is not satisfied with being back in Jerusalem without having the status, his status with the king restored. And so he sends for King David's advisor, Joab, to set up a hearing with the king. And after Joab refuses to respond, you know what Absalom goes and does? He lights, he has his servants light Joab's fields on fire, which is a cardinal sin everywhere, but in Colorado, you probably especially feel this. And Joab, understandably, is like, you did what? Why are you having your servants light my field on fire? But Absalom will get what he wants at any cost. If Absalom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. This is a bit like if you texted someone to see if they'll connect you with their boss so you can try to get a job and they leave you unread, <laughs> and then you light their car on fire. <laughs> and they're so at a loss by the extraordinary ex- escalation that they're like, what the heck, man? Like, why are you lighting my car on fire? But here's the thing. It works. <laughs> Joab gets Absalom a hearing with the king. Absalom wagers that David's passivity will continue and that he won't punish him for killing Amnon, and he's right. But the scene we see in the passage that Brad read for us is not exactly a warm and fuzzy reunion between father and son. Despite five years of separation, there are no tears, there is no exclamation, there is no warm embrace recorded for us. Absalom bows not like a son, but like a servant before David. And David kisses Absalom, and his kiss is probably not so much a sign of affection as it is a sign of royal restoration. That at least on official terms, Absalom is recognized as an ongoing part of the royal family. But lest you think Absalom just deeply needed relational reconciliation with his father to be okay, just read the following verses. Absalom's end game is not reconciliation with his father, He wants to restore his status in Israel so that he can reach his ultimate aim, which is to take the throne from David, to take the throne from his father. He wants to be king. He even begins to pretend like he's king. It's sort of comical when you read the beginning of chapter 15. He begins what one commentator calls the politics of pomp. He gets a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him playing pretend. Pretend. 
This is like going and buying a fake Rolex so people think you have money. He begins to pretend like he is king, and then he starts a disinformation campaign. He intercepts people who are coming to receive guidance and justice from the king's courts, and he says, oh, you're from the tribe of Benjamin? Oh, you're from the tribe of Judah? Well, the king uh, hasn't designated anybody to serve you, which was a lie, by the way, but I will render judgment for you. And he says in verse four, oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man, would with, man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. His disinformation campaign operates on the tenant that the king did not care for the needs of the people and that his self-appointed authority would be the best thing that ever came to Israel. And he did it all with great charm. He was smooth as butter. He wooed the people with his charm and good looks. He kissed them. He rendered judgments for them. And, he, and they began to trust his authority over that of God's anointed king, and dare I say, over God's. It tells us in verse 6 that he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom has committed full-on treachery, and he looked good doing it. The chapters that follow the one that we read today will detail his rise to the throne and David fleeing for his life. And here's the thing. Absalom is full of self-righteous zeal. And every turn, and at every turn, he believes more deeply that he is the solution to the kingdom's problems. First, he was the one who could provide justice when there was none. And that might have been true on some level but it grew until he had determined that no one should be king other than him. Never mind that his own father David was the anointed king by God. He didn't mind manufacturing problems for, the, for manipulating people's felt needs because even if David was willing to make judgments for the people, in Absalom's view, he would be a better king anyway. His ends justified the means. He is full of self-righteous zeal and self-justified zeal. He will do whatever it takes to become king. Put another way, Absalom is an absolute narcissist. To say that he has a savior complex would be putting it mildly. He had started out somewhat relatable with his vigilantism, but he slowly reveals that actually at the center of Absalom's universe is Absalom. He will get what he wants at any cost. His life and character reveal to us some important things about the human condition. Absalom's trajectory is the trajectory of self-righteousness. I trust that none of you this morning here are all-out narcissists. Even the fact that you're here on a Sunday morning means that you want to be reminded that life is not ultimately just about you. Even if you're here this morning and not a Christian and maybe exploring Christianity for the first time, the fact that you're here means that you're curious about the possibility that life could be not ultimately about you. And as a Christian, you're reminding yourself that it's about God and his kingdom. But I do want you to see that our cultural norms encourage us towards self-righteousness. Social media encourages us to see our brand and our image as a thing to be curated, curated. It tells us that our voice is the, or at least one of the most important voices in the conversation. 
When we say things like, you do you, it is on the assumption that you per- your personally formed ethical frameworks are the best possible frameworks for your personal kingdom. When the thought crosses our mind, if I don't do this, it will never get done. If I don't say this, it will never get said right. If I don't make so-and-so do such-and-such, they'll never do it. And part of what makes these thoughts so compelling is that very often we do see shortcomings and failures. Absalom saw legitimate ones in David and in his kingship. But what started for Absalom with some clarity about the brokenness and fallenness of David's kingship ended with Absalom totally blinded by his own vanity and self-righteousness because it went unchecked. When those thoughts cross our mind, we need to at least take a breath and say, what's going on in me that I think if I don't do this, if I am not the one who speaks in this, then it's never going to go the way that it needs to. To ask ourselves, is self-righteousness at work in us? Absalom is an extreme example, to be sure, but his narcissism reveals to us the trajectory of self-justified, self-righteous zeal. For us, it may never reach full-blown narcissism, but do you know that the heart of self-righteousness is simply narcissism in seed form? Absalom reveals to us the trajectory of self-righteousness that we as human beings are so prone to. But also the story reveals to us that the human heart is prone to trust narcissistic leaders. We're prone to trust people who are themselves narcissistic. In many ways, Absalom is the archetype of the American hero. He's rough around the edges. He's got rugged good looks, a bit of a vigilante. He started out with a just cause, and he knows what he wants, and he will not take no for an answer. And when I step back and look at this passage, one of the most striking things to me is that the people fall for him. Even though he has no interest in actually serving the people, he's using them as pawns in his game. They fall for him. He has no interest in being a servant of God. In the verses that follow the ones that we read today, Absalom lies about a a vow that he has made to God in order to trick David into letting him to go go to Hebron so he can execute his scheme, scheme to become king. For Absalom, even Yahweh, the God of Israel, was just a pawn to be used to achieve his ends. And yet, in the midst of all of his treachery, rebellion, narcissism, and disregard for God, and utter willingness to use and abuse people to get his way, he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. They fell for it hook, line, and sinker. Could we be in danger of falling for the same sort of characters? History says yes. The sheer number of smooth-talking, self-inflated, narcissistic, political, and business leaders who make it to the top in our culture is astonishing. But it's not just outside the church. It's also inside the church. Have you heard any stories over the last few years of church leaders who had seemingly massive ministry success, had thousands of people readily working at their beckoned call, only to find out in the end that the leader at the center of it all was massively arrogant, was a massively arrogant narcissist who didn't care who got run over 
as long as it accomplished their ends. And this isn't just about those leaders. It's about us. All of us can be suckered into some form of this or another. Absalom uses this incredibly common formula to find a deficiency in our world or in common people and to appoint himself judge of the situation and to make his voice known as the salient voice, assuming that his voice is the essential voice and the people should listen to him. In our world, this may be as simple as opening a Twitter account, cultivating your brand, and starting a podcast, which, by the way, this is not a hit on Brad for having a podcast. <laughs> There's other things at play in Brad having a podcast. For example, he's like an ordained minister who's held accountable by a denomination. So anyways, not about that. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. But it's as easy so often for a leader to just declare that God has called them to start, a char- start some sort of charge. Or even when wise counselors advise people against it, they're like, no, 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 God has called me to this, regardless of what the wisdom of God's people and wise advisors say. And the next thing you know, you've got a following, and if you're this kind of leader, you start believing your own press. This person becomes the arbiter of truth. Absalom had appointed himself the next king of Israel and the better king of Israel, and the people fell for it. So why are we prone to falling for this kind of foolishness? The human heart is a, in a broken world is searching for a better king. The human heart is searching for a better leader. David had fallen short of displaying the character of God, and we have often not spent enough time with a good shepherd to know what his voice sounds like and what his word says, and so we are easily allured by at best self-deceived people with a savior complex, or at worst bold-faced narcissists who know exactly what they are doing. And sometimes we ourselves are the ones with the savior complex. We think we know better than anyone else what would fix this broken world. This is Absalom's way, and it worked. There's nothing new under the sun, though, and that is an encouragement to us because the Scripture does offer us a new and better way. But before we look at the better way that the Scripture offers us, we need to actually take a little bit more of a look at the problem of not only Absalom but of David. If Absalom's problem is that he is full of self-righteous zeal, which will always put us on the spectrum of narcissism if left unchecked, David's problem is that he has become a moral coward. And this is teased for us in verse 28 when it says, So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Absalom was in the same city as the king. He had been brought back because uh, Joab had had advocated for him coming back, but then David never actually interacted with him. David said, he can come back to the city, but he's gonna stay in that house over there and never the twain shall meet. David had agreed for Absalom to come back to Jerusalem after being self-exiled for killing Amnon, but David is still avoidant of the situation and of his family mess, which he, at the end of the day, is chiefly responsible for. He won't enter into the hard stuff that is the legacy of his own failures as a father and king. And how did David arrive at moral cowardice? David arrived here because he had stared his own sin in the face. David saw what he was capable of. He was capable of adultery, probably assault, and certainly murder. David's passivity towards Amnon raping Tamar despite being very angry about it doesn't come in a vacuum. 
His cowardice and avoidance of addressing Absalom doesn't either. And maybe you're here this morning and you can relate to David. Maybe the self-righteous zeal of Absalom seems far from your reality, but David is a bit more relatable. Maybe you've had to stare in the face the depth of your sin. Maybe you've seen your marriage fracture by your selfishness. Maybe you've been caught in addiction. Maybe you're just hyper aware of how far you are from God's standard of loving God and loving neighbor, and you feel like you have no moral standing whatsoever. David has been confronted over his sin of adultery and uh, and of murder, and he has repented. The prophet Nathan had spoken God's grace over him, but also warned him that there would be consequence for his sin. And David is living as one who has lost the moral high ground and who has accepted the fate of the consequences of his sin. But David is actually making it worse. His mistake is that in his wallowing over his sin, he is forsaking the duties of a king, of the anointed king of Israel. His abdication of his responsibilities accelerates the rise of Absalom's uh, rise to power. David knew God, and he loved God, and he knew God's vision for the world, but after his moral failing... He fell into a a pattern of cowardly passivity. This may parade as humility in our lives, but it often functions as self-pitying paralysis. Absalom is a picture of self-righteous activity, and David is a picture of unrighteous passivity. Which one of these are you most prone to in your own life? Your life may be marked by self-righteous activity or looking to leaders marked by self-righteous zeal, or maybe your life is marked by unrighteous passivity. But in either case, what are we to do? David and Absalom and their relationship and their family and the kingdom of Israel are an absolute and total train wreck. When When we read stories like this, our first response should be, oh God, may your kingdom come. And your will be done. David was the best king Israel ever got. And for a few years, it was beautiful, a glimmer of God's kingdom, until David fell flat on his face. Absalom would would prove to be a short-lived king, and his own vanity would betray him. As the head of hair that he was so proud of actually got caught in a tree in the midst of a battle, making him an easy target to be killed in battle. But both of these kings... In the end, leave Israel longing for a better king and a better kingdom. And so it should lead us to this longing as well. But here's the beautiful thing about the story of Scripture. The only way for Absalom to get out of his own way, to be weaned off of his self-righteousness that misguided his good desires and fueled his evil ones, is to know that true righteousness can only come from outside of yourself. The only way for David to get out of his own way and out of his own head and out of his his false humility and out of his moral cowardice to be a king that he's called to be, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with his God is to know that his sin has been paid for and to know that God in his mercy has counted him as righteous. Brothers and sisters, we need to know that we have been offered in Jesus an alien righteousness, 
a righteousness from outside of ourselves that can transform our relationship with self-righteousness and with moral cowardice. Jesus says in Matthew 5, chapter 20, speaking about the Pharisees, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees who were morally devout, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The true and better king that the kings of Israel make us long for and look forward to deals with both our self-righteous activity and our unrighteous passivity through his perfect obedience and his sacrificial death. There's this language that theologians have used for many centuries to refer to two parts of the goodness and beauty of what Jesus does for us in his redeeming work. They talk about this language of his active and passive obedience. His active obedience meaning that he alone completely and totally fulfilled the entire law of God. He loved his father and his neighbor perfectly. He was and is just and merciful. He fulfilled every moral imperative of the Bible, not only before the eyes of men, but from the heart. That is his active obedience. He was the first human being to get being human right. But also, Jesus had perfect passive obedience. This language of passive obedience probably sounds like an oxymoron to us. What is Jesus' passive obedience? In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, it says, And going a little further, Jesus fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What was the will of the Father that Jesus willingly followed? It was to have the wrath of God, all of the displeasure that you and I deserve for our self-righteousness, and for our moral cowardice, poured out on him. He displayed perfect passive obedience, receiving the punishment for the sins justly due to us. And here's what's remarkable and transformative for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 5.18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. It's not only that Jesus has lived a life of perfect obedience, of active and passive obedience, it's that in God's kindness... All the obedience of Jesus has been applied to us as we receive it by faith. And what does this mean for us? How can we be self-righteous when we know that the only one who lived a perfect life is Jesus and he has credited us for his work? The thing about self-righteousness is that it only works by comparison. (laughs) And that only works if we're comparing ourselves to other people who are morally struggling who are fellow sinners and broken people in this world. But when we see Jesus in his perfect righteousness, there is no space for self-righteousness, only for humility that no one can boast because instead we receive as a gift the righteousness and goodness that Jesus has given us that he alone has accomplished. There is no place for self-righteousness. But also, beloved, how can we wallow in moral cowardice when our sin has been fully paid for and we have been counted as righteous. 
that we are not just people who live in debt, but we have been, not only has our debt been paid for, but we are people who live with the credit of Jesus' righteousness. We are viewed through the lens of Jesus. When God looks at you by faith, you are not seen as a sinner. You are seen as a saint, covered in the robes of Jesus' righteousness. You are seen as one who has accomplished everything that Jesus has accomplished, who has loved your neighbor perfectly, who has laid down your life for those around you sacrificially. Yes, we're still learning to live into this, and we will until Jesus comes back. But do you know that that has been credited to you? That that is how God views you? We don't have to wallow in moral cowardice despite our failing. We can actually move into life with courage because though we have to move in with humility, knowing our weakness and our sin, we're not counted by our sin, by the the goodness instead of Jesus. If you've had a major moral failure, it may be hard to lift up your head. It's fair to recognize that you need to rebuild trust with people, but you do not have to stand on the sidelines of what God has called you to. That is a false humility. You are free to live and act and love and the power and goodness of what Jesus has given you. Absalom lives a life of self-righteous activity, lived out all the way to absolute narcissism. And David has begun to live a life of unrighteous passivity, stunted by moral cowardice following his failing. But the new and better king, Jesus, frees us from both. He alone can deal with humanity's self-righteousness and humanity's tendency to wallow in cowardly passivity when we see our unrighteousness. Thanks be to God that Jesus has begun to bring the kingdom of God, and he will one day bring it in full. Amen. Let's see if we have any questions for our Q&A this morning. We do. Okay. All right. a multi-part question here. Why wouldn't David do anything about his daughter's rape? How is that behavior appropriate for someone called by God to kingship? Yes. <laughs> uh, that's exactly right. That's, that's the point of this story is that David should have done something about his daughter's rape. But he was so stuck in his moral cowardice of self-pitying that he didn't. Uh, I think, obviously, the, 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 uh, the starkness of the circumstance in this makes it seem so obvious, and that is true. But I think the challenge for us is recognizing that this happens oftentimes in much more subtle ways in our own lives, that we refrain from doing the things that God has called us to. I think here's an example Oftentimes, particularly in our culture that uh, calls us to having this ideal of authenticity, for example, that we have to fully feel a sense of love for our neighbor or our family in order to act in the way that love would call us to act. Because we are ashamed that our hearts are not aligned in full with actually loving another person, we refrain from loving them because we say, I'm not there yet. But that's exactly what David is doing on a much smaller scale, of course. 
he's saying, because of my moral failing, I, I can't deal with this thing. I can't do this thing. I'm not aligned with it. But Jesus says, yeah, that's right. You're not. Your heart is not loving enough. And yet, you are loved by me. And I have forgiven you. I've paid for your shortcomings. And I have credited you my righteousness. And yes, you're going to fall short, but I'm still calling you to love your neighbor and to love your family in sacrificial ways, even though your internal world is not fully aligned. That's just a, a, maybe a little example that might help kind of tease out what that might look like um, in our lives. Okay, um, second question. Uh, church leaders who, those church leaders who fell felt they were doing God's will as evidenced by the real fruit that was being born, i.e. salvations, baptisms, etc. How do we separate the real fruit from the narcissistic fruit produced? Man, this is a great question. One of the complications of this uh, that's actually good news for us is that the Bible tells us that even what man intends for evil... God is so good that he can even redeem that to bring about good, which never justifies the evil, but it gives us comfort in knowing that even when evil is intended, God ultimately will bring redemption. So I think that helps us reconcile that a little bit. It's not because this person uh, or a narcissistic leader um, is doing the right thing that this fruit is coming out. It's because God is big enough and good enough to actually bring about good even from what man intends for evil. Um, but I think one of the things that, uh, I think Brad has talked about this a, a good bit as well, um, we have a tendency to, to view competency as the primary lens for leadership rather than character, which is reversed from how the Bible views it, even in, in terms of how the Bible views elders and deacons, the qualifications are primarily not about gifting, but about character. Um, and I think that Part of what it means to actually be able to push back on this tendency in the church is to be people who are okay, are much more okay with inefficiency than we tend to be, who are more okay with being patient and waiting on God's kingdom, because we're going to go about things in ways that are actually consistent with Jesus' character and the character that he calls us to, living lives of repentance. Um, we care more about that than seeing flashpoints of fruit quickly, uh, which is hard because it calls all of us to become people who are waiting on Jesus' kingdom to come. We're, I think we're suckered in by a lot of this kind of like glamorous leadership because it's like, oh, finally, we don't have to wait. <laughs> we don't actually have to wait on the Lord. We don't actually have to trust him. We can just see this cool thing that we can now uh, connect our brand to and feel like we're doing something cool. Um, so anyways, hopefully that helps uh, a little bit. Um, There's uh, another question that I'll refer back to a previous sermon, uh, a question about how can David be referred to as uh, a man after God's own heart when he messes up more than he does right. That's a great question. I'll refer you back to Brad's first sermon in the series that talked about what it means that David is a, a man after God's own heart. It doesn't just mean that um, David was better than everybody else. <laughs> um, it means that God had chosen him as his anointed um, and that's also uh, good news for us. But let me pray for us before we move into, into communion. Uh, Father, we come this morning as people, um, myself very much included, humbled by the reality that I am a self-righteous person. Lord, you know my heart. You know how consistently 
I think even in the littlest things, <laughs> even in some of the dumbest things in life, whether it's how I cook something or a drink that I make, how imbued the little things are so often with self-righteousness. Uh, Lord, forgive me. Uh, Father, I, I confess also um, the reality of my tendency towards moral cowardice and seeing my shortcomings and, and staying on the sideline as a result. But Jesus, I ask that this morning for all of us, that you would remind us that we come to the table, that we come to live out daily life before you and before our neighbors, not based on what we bring to the table, but based on what you bring to the table and your mercy and your kindness. Jesus, thank you that you are a true and better king, that you have lived your life perfectly, that you have paid fully the penalty for our sins, and that you have credited those things to us in Jesus. Lord, give us the humility and awe um, and courage to live out of that beautiful gift that you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.